Tax time is around the corner, and it always reminds me of the same thing. I hate math. This industry requires us to be so good at so many things, it's overwhelming. Fortunately, we don't have to do the number crunching alone. Over at Yelp for Restaurants, the, let's call them math enthusiasts, can help you tackle the numbers that impact your business with cutting-edge software that tracks guest numbers, check sizes, and much more. Visit restaurants.yelp.com for more information on the tools that can get you off the computer and back on the floor. Now here we go. We could have gotten lobster that was more inexpensive. There's different grades of lobster, like there are steaks. But we went to the top. And then when we got all this success, we could have still gone back down and said, okay, now let's really, you know, let's really, we got it. If you act that way, your business suffers. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Today's conversation is part one of a two-part series. Today, I sat down with Sabin and Jim from Cousins Maine Lobster. Maybe you know these two from Shark Tank. Maybe you don't. But what you should know is that these two cousins have scaled one food truck into a $55 million business over the last 10 years. Over the next two episodes, we'll unpack the tactics, tools, and strategies they use to build a restaurant empire. We talk about that all the time, where how many people have already gone on Shark Tank? So what's the fundamental difference? We're not the only ones. So it gives you a huge boost. It does give you an advantage, but what you do with it is what's important. And a lot of times people just don't realize how many advantages they already have and how many assets they have at their disposal. They just kind of write those things off. So in our instance, I think we capitalized on it and we just refused to stop. Well, I think too, like Josh, to your point, oh, you went on TV. You're on a reality show, whether it be any reality show people watch with business or lifestyle, that doesn't make you a millionaire. It doesn't make your business succeed when you wake up the next day and say, okay, everything's perfect. We're good. It's just going to be cruise control. To Saban's point, you need to have an amazing product. And that's really when the work still begins. You had a platform to show 9, 10 million people. Now your story's out there and now you really got the target on your back. So for us, you want to talk about blue collar or in the trenches. That's just when you really, really, really in 2000. 14 for us ever since then. It's just grinding and it's making things better and better and better. And it is not always glorious. In fact, it's quite the opposite of, but it's the outward facing thing. You see, like you said, 36 trucks, actually 50. Um, (laughs) That's what people see. They see, or they see lobster or they see this really nice delicacy food item in a pretty clean truck in a nice restaurant. That's the finished product. But the things that go on behind the curtain and staying relevant, I think the most important points they've made is you can forget a lot of groups from Shark Tank. You might not think of them. Do I ever see them? What's that product? Are they still in the space? We work every day to stay, not just in the spotlight for our ego. It's to keep the brand relevant and present from openings to food, to technology, to customer service, etc. That's the hard work. Well, not to blow more sunshine up your ass, but I mean, you also have to look at, so my fine dining restaurant was New Orleans inspired. So it was a ton of seafood. And it's easy because I think people eat steak every day, right? People eat burgers and Italian food every day. But in order for us to be busier than shit every single day, our market size 
had to be massive because nobody's eating seafood every day. And so when you look at the specialization of your product, it's great for niche, but you've also had to build a larger audience than everyone else. Because, I mean, what's the frequency? I'm sure you guys have it calculated. The average customer dines with you how many times a month? Yeah, it's actually like our most frequent or loyal customers are three to four times a month. But then the other ones may come once a month, once a quarter. Sure. So it's not like grabbing a salad you can eat three times a week or a burger or a chicken sandwich, to your point. So, yeah, we're always trying to increase that market, again, through technology, through the mobility of our business, through the app, through advertising. There's a huge spend to try and get people to just, like you said, eat something that is not a common day, everyday food. Well, and also we serve it in a very relaxed, casual environment, whether it's a restaurant, which is fast, casual, but most of our locations are food trucks. So you're serving one of the most luxurious items which you would associate Maine Lobster with caviar or champagne. I mean, it's pretty top end out of a food truck and it's not inexpensive. So it has to be perfect. It has to be a special treat for people to want to continue to come back. And then we have to continue to keep our foot on the pedal to say, cool, we had a really good successful day here today. That doesn't mean we're going to be successful here tomorrow. In fact, statistically, we aren't. So we have to keep it moving literally. It is not inexpensive. No. In industry, right, where I would say for generations now, we have all competed to see who could sell the cheapest stuff for the longest period of time until one of us goes out of business. You guys are not inexpensive. And I think the reason that you've been able to thrive is because you have redefined value for your customers. Right. So it's not, I get a lot for a little. What is the value proposition to your customers? I mean, listen, that's a great question. Can you come work with us? I will. Absolutely. The way that you present things and, and ask questions is phenomenal. And you're right. We have, we're trying to show value. But when we started, we said, listen, lobster is inherently an expensive product, right? It's a wild caught animal. There's supply demand, just like other things. So the prices fluctuate. We know that. So we tried to take the best quality ever. We've never changed our quality for 10 years because we said, if you have the best quality 10 years ago, you should have it on year two, year yep. three, any visit till today. Otherwise you cheapen your food quality. There you go. There goes your customer base, right? So we stayed true to that. And when we had price increases, which have happened, we try to absorb some and try to give a fair amount to the customer so you can maintain your business before you go out of business. So we said, well, what's the most important thing outside of just an amazing lobster roll? Because that's obviously key. But so is our service. We said, treat everyone from day one like it's your mother at the window, right? You have a small time frame to interact with them, teach them about the menu. But it's important to teach them like we're mama's boys. That's what we do. And then it's the truck. What's it look like? How are we telling our story and the brand and the movement that we believe that people are getting behind? And we do that through an 85-inch TV on our trucks where we show the lobstermen back in Maine and hauling your catch and how it gets to you to try and educate the customer to feel really good about where their food's coming from, the quality, the sustainability, and then they eat it and it should be a 10 every time. That's what we go for. And I think that there's a difference between a business and a transaction and a brand. And that's what we're trying to do. We treat our staff, our team, our franchisees all throughout the country like they're a family. So it's part of something exclusive. I think our customers feel that too. We had a woman text us or, or tag us on Instagram the other day who's driving through the snow, being like, nothing will stop me from getting my lobster. We reach out to her. We let her know it's loved and appreciated. And I think that keeps her as part of the Cousins Main Lobster family. You guys, I think you charted $55 million in 2021. 
And you think back to just one food truck, right? And I'm sure that you guys weren't washing the facade of the food truck day one. And you're like, we're going to grow this thing to $55 million. We all have these limiting beliefs. But what does that path look like, right? So you go on the show, you were busy before the show, right? And so you had this thing that you knew was great. I think the story is you had turned them down multiple times before actually appearing on the show. What was the goal with that first truck? How big did you think you would get? And what things did you put into place to help you get there? Well, the goal was to break even, truthfully. The goal was for this to be more of a passion project. We both had full-time jobs. We both were doing quite well in our young careers. I was 29, Jim 26, something around, the, something like that. And we were comfortable. So it was really more about doing something we were proud of. And I think that is a huge lesson because most people want to run the Excel sheets on how much money they can make to see how it's going to grow and be scalable, as opposed to just thinking, how is this going to work? How is this going to be something that I'm, I put my name behind and I'm proud of? So that was something in hindsight that really worked well for us because that when we were shopping for lobster, we went for the best lobster. Every move we made when it came to customer service or kindness or responses online, we tried to do it from a really kind and empathetic way, not one that was revolving around greed and money. So anyway, they asked us to go on the show. We did say no twice and it wasn't because of ego. It was because we didn't really think we were ready. We'd only been open a month or a couple of weeks. We're like, dude, we don't know. And what, you know, what, we don't know anything about what we're doing. We don't even know what a P&L is. No clue how to value a business. So thankfully, we went on. It was the best decision we could have made. And even after going on, and I remember the first six months, we had no idea, like, is this a fad? Is this, this going to fade off? Our food truck's a fad? We had no clue. So we just continued to work both of our jobs. And we're like kind of one foot in, one foot out until finally we're like, man, if we're going to do this, we got to commit. So we both quit our jobs. Jim moved from Boston to LA. We finally got off my air mattress, which was fantastic. <laughs> we went all in. And it wasn't to scale. It was really more so like, if we don't do this, we'll regret. It was more one of those things. And we went to one to two trucks. Then we go, well, shit, we can do this. We just doubled our sales. That means double them. Okay. Then we went from two to three. Then we went from three to four. And it was Barbara's idea. So you can franchise this. And my response was, what's franchise? Yeah. I didn't go to business school and um, I barely made it through school because I was just partying too much. That's true. And, I, I like that point. Yeah. yeah <laughs> but the truth is we I had you know, I go to McDonald's, I didn't know there were two different owners. I don't care. Right. And when we first franchised, we had hoped we had about two thousand people apply. And we chose about ten people. So another another way of showing like the lack of greed and the immediate money grabs we could have had from just franchise fees. We wanted people to be successful. And we had no clue if they would be successful in Raleigh, North Carolina. We're in LA. Look how good we do. But in Raleigh, right. you're not going to do it. Who's Raleigh? And as it turns out, people did better in these smaller elbow markets. Ever since then, once we started going, oh shit, that works, we need to figure this out. And so we've spent the last eight years trying to perfect that. It's really interesting to know that you had other jobs before because for so many, and restaurateurs aside, so many entrepreneurs buy themselves a job, right? Huh. They drop all of their money. What do they say? You know, you're working a hundred hours a week for yourself to avoid working yeah. 40 hours a week for someone else. 
you're paying to work for free. All of these entrepreneurial maxims, these jokes, these memes. How did you not get sucked up into it? Now, having a job is obviously a distraction, but once you're all in, you had to have a clear indication of what you were going to do every day, right? Yeah, it's correct. And I think that to Sabe's point, we kind of followed a passion. We wanted to represent our home state. We wanted to represent Maine and put our names on something and have fun with something. It was going to be a passion project. I stay in Boston. He stays in LA. But once it became something more, you got to make that leap, cut the cord and go all in. Then to your point, it's like, okay, well, our back's against the wall. Who would you rather do it with? Anyone in the world, but we'd rather do it with family. So it's the family members that we sit there and say, hey, we're gonna, that's who we're going to trust most. And that is who is going to make this thing fly. Because you need to, because you lost your security, your salary, your commissions of our previous jobs. And now you're all in, in this entrepreneurial journey without any of those safety nets. So you got to make it tick. So then for us, Saban said, we grew to four corporate trucks. And then when Barbara introduced the idea of franchise, spent the next year learning that, which is a whole new business within a business, even though it was food trucks and restaurants. And we tried to figure everything out to make that successful. And so we started really by saying, hey, in order to make a franchise successful, of course, you need inquiries and you need to grow over time and people to know about your business and brand. But we said we need to find the right people. We say, Barbara said, find the best average of Jim and Saban for your franchisees that will represent the brand with integrity and reputation and respect. And that's what we tried to find. And it's a lot harder to find than people may think. We always say, hey, we want our franchisees to be, of course, in a great market and great entrepreneurs and business people. But we want to be able to sit down and have a beer with you, talk about your kids or your vacation or life outside of like we do with Barbara. That creates the foundation, the rapport, the stability for those franchisees to grow and scale. And I think really to answer your question to say, hey, how do you not buy a job? You need to find a business that has the upside, like we have found fortunately here over time, that can scale. And that means we can scale. That means our franchisees that start with one unit now have two or three or four. They have trucks and now they're adding restaurants. They're taking other territories, other markets. So it's become really fruitful for them too. As they left their previous medical career or as a doctor, as a lawyer, as an insurance rep, whatever it may be, stay-at-home moms. They come here and see success with that and they see the avenue to grow and have their profits grow. That's like the American dream right there in and of itself. I also think just more than anything, you have to do things for the right reason. Again, we wanted to make money, but more than that, we wanted to be successful. We wanted it to work. We were making a lot of the decisions early on just based on really kind of blue-collar gut stuff. The reason our trucks are black is because we're big sports fans. And we just thought that black jerseys kind of stood out and looked tough. They kind of look cool. I don't know any marketing book that could teach you that. And I don't know that it's right or wrong. It worked for us, luckily. And so half of the things or more didn't work for us. But having the humility and the ability to just kind of like try stuff and throw it and work for the right end result, I think is super important. And one thing, Jimmy, when you were talking, I think it's before we started, we took personality assessment tests together. Yeah. I've, known him my whole, I've known him my whole life, but I don't know Jim intimately. I don't know how his head works, right? And it came back to say his personality was terrible. I'd like to know you intimately, <laughs> by the way. But just found out that when problems arise, Saban might do this and Jim might do that. So it's easier for us to navigate. It's like a cheat sheet to marriage. So taking the time to do things foundationally the right way then can allow for money later on. But I think most people just get it all backwards. Let's talk about key hires. 
I think that's one of the places that people get it all backwards. Nobody is going to do it better than you, but that's not really the point. The point is, is that you get to spend your time doing what you're best in the world at. And so if we flash back to the first truck or to the first four trucks, I would assume one of the key inflection points was finding the right people to manage those trucks. Because you're not restaurant managers, you're restaurateurs. And I think that in the minds of so many of us, we confuse the two, right? You said something where you said, no one's going to do it as good as us, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what people think. And I think that's actually one of the biggest mistakes they make. And I know I made it, Jim made it. And then I slowly kind of crept out of that quicker than him. And I would push him, say, hey, man, you need to stop doing so much of this shit. But I'll give you an example is that the biggest key hire for us, and we did go from one to four trucks, and you're right, we had managers, and we had this and we had that, but to scale the business to franchise, we needed someone to take on that role. So I called my best friend, who I went to college with, who lived in Queens, New York. He was a former professional soccer player, now coaching. And I said, hey, man, would you ever want to come out and, and work with us? And he's like, doing what? And I'm like, opening the franchise. He said, what does that mean? I got no fucking clue. We'll figure it out together, though, right? And I know him. I know who he is. Foundation. He's a good person, good family, works his ass off, but he doesn't know anything about this. And he takes the job, takes a 50% pay cut, moves out. And what this guy does, he does better than Jim and I. He does better than us. And I think realizing that people can do things much better than you, and they should, because God knows we're not good at everything, is the way to have key hires. One of our executives was an assistant six, seven years ago, I don't remember. And this guy's mind is unbelievable. And recognizing that people, their differences are the asset. If you had a bunch of Jim and Sabins, all you'd have is a bunch of crazy, loud conversations, mostly erratic all the time. We need people to ground us. We need people to make the machine work too and think differently than us. So I think key hires, a lot of times people look for themselves. And I think that's a huge, huge mistake. And I think that they want to micromanage those people, even though those people are better at the job than you. Social media. We have a person who handles our social media. She's amazing. She can run laps around us. She should. I don't specialize in that. So that would be my answer. When I look for myself, I just carry a mirror around all day. And that makes it. <laughs> that's a good idea. One of my best things. I think you referenced something. I mean, Saban hit it on the head. but. As an interesting point to people starting out, no matter what business it may be, even, is that you said it early on. You said, hey, when you have one truck, you get to two to three. I remember it was our first week of business. I was still living in Boston and business was booming, 75 person lines, cash out the wazoo and a register we didn't even have when we opened, didn't know what to do with it. And I remember getting on the phone with my dad and I said, I had to go back to Boston to work my full time job. I said, Dad, I don't, I can't go back to Boston. I said, why not? I said, well, because Saban and I are outside. We're talking to the customers, telling them about Maine and growing up there and the product and the quality and it's vibing. It makes sense. I can't leave. I said, well, Jim, if you ever have more than one truck, which you're going to need for two grown men to have a living, you're not going to be able to be at both of them, right, at the same time. And then we have three trucks. You physically won't be able to be at the third truck. So how do you make this thing tick and operate and grow, be it corporately or now franchise? And the answer is those key people. And I think for us, as our franchisor, or the franchisor, as our corporate staff, or as franchisees that we find, like to Saban's point, we find the person, we don't worry about the resume, and we really don't worry about the budget with, I need to make this hourly or this salary, not to say that we just pay anything. 
But I do think we're usually above market because we can bring in those phenomenal minds, the workhorses, the people that are loyal and trustworthy that might have been, our other executive was a former professional trainer. So he's a coach. He's a teacher. That's the way I look at it. And now he runs our entire compliance and training program throughout the country. And he's teaching and coaching them how to have the best franchise operationally from A to Z. So that you just take and you tweak and you put it into your system. And of course, the best part for all these guys is that they can see their own path to success because as we add more trucks, more units, the business grows. They can get either promotions if they're in way for it or raises and continue to have their handprint on the company. We don't micromanage them as well. So oftentimes we're bringing someone in with the hopes that they can do something and make the business better, but we're not on them all the time going, what have you done this week? What'd you do today? How's it going? What's the progress? And that allows people to lower their guard. It allows them to actually get into it and be themselves, which is so important. And then you look at it in the end and you go, wow, man, that was an unbelievable achievement. It's all their shine. It's not Saban telling them to do something. It's theirs. And then that gives them a pride that is invaluable. And these aren't things that we knew. <laughs> and we just said, oh, man, we're so smart. Here's how it's going to roll out. So you asked about the one truck. We knew fucking nothing about anything. But we were forced to learn because we were really busy. And in hindsight, looking at it, and now we know. So now we know marketing and what works. And we know how to treat staff. And we, But a lot of these were just the way that we are. And how it's gone, you can look back now and go, man, that's the difference. And if you listen to our staff, that's what they tell you. They're like, these guys allow us to be us. And they believe in us. That's what, That keeps people happy. It's not just about money. To unpack something you said, because I thought it was super valuable, is that you don't micromanage. Now, the yeah. only way to not micromanage is for your entire team to be aligned around what winning looks like. Yeah, and so. Are. Then that's the hurdle. So if you could explain to me how you've achieved that alignment, how are you communicating with what is a massive team, making sure that everyone knows what the most important things are? I think by including them in all of the wins is one of the biggest thing. Include, we have group text messages, with 25, 30 people on them, and it could be a good job, Jane, good job, Sean, good job. Hey, look what Jameson did. It's celebrating everyone's victories. It's allowing people to fail without judgment. It's a good question. And I don't know that we've consciously sat there and said, how the heck do we do it? But really, I think we've just allowed people to be themselves. And when you don't put too high of a ceiling on for people and you and you don't sit there and wonder what they're doing and call them all the time and you allow them to ease into things, Apparently, because this is the first time I've been a boss, right? So I don't know. But apparently, most other people don't do it this way. Because people that come, they go, what a breath of fresh air. It's so nice to be here. Wow, you guys are so supportive. You're so kind. And we like to get notes from our management and from people about so-and-so. So, hey, when, when Esther has done a great job about this, let us know. You don't need to let us tell us everything. But it's important for us to stay in touch and make sure that she's heard and she's valued. I think these are really easy nuggets. I'm not telling you anything I don't believe is too fascinating, but being kind and being just a nice person, I think is really, really important. And I think that in our position or in many positions where people get to a certain level or they just think that they're the boss, they think that they don't have to do that. I've worked in 50 restaurants. 
I was a, a dishwasher, a busboy. I started working at 12. I've done every job. And I remember every one of my bosses, just like I, re- I was an athlete. And I remember every one of my coaches. And I remember the ones that were cool. I remember the ones that were relatable. I remember the ones that were kind to a person who had no money growing up, single parent family. I remember. So I try to show that type of empathy and kindness to my staff. And if you can do that and still let them make a great living and grow, I think it's a winning formula. Let's talk about budgets and a great living. One of the reasons that I think many independents don't bring on key people early is because they can't afford it. And one of the big light bulb moments for me was I brought on a general manager to kind of head up operations and I paid him $150,000 a year, which was almost double what I was paying for myself. Yeah. And in the light bulb moment was, and it worked out really well for me, but it was that it wasn't an expense. Paying that man's salary was not an expense. It was an investment. And he was going to 10x that return because he was the right butt in the right seat. You know what I mean? Yeah. How long did it take you guys to figure that out? It took us probably a couple of years, I don't know, maybe three years or so. I remember hiring one of our assistants, and I think we hired him at $15 an hour. And I remember Jim going, we don't need an assistant. We're fine. Why would we pay, pay that? Why would we lose that? Previous to my, here I worked in real estate and I remember my employers, they spent a lot of money. They believe in spending and they're getting return. And I'd seen their wealth that they'd accumulated because I was fascinated. If I grew up poor. I was like, man, how did you get those watches? How did you get those cars? And they spent. So I said, Jim, I'm telling you, we need it. And he went with it after three interviews. And this guy is so unbelievable that forget the money that we spent. It was at the time, 15 bucks an hour, circa seven, eight years ago was a lot for us. He made our business so much better. And we realized that he needs a real job. And this is one of the executives that I'm telling you now, who runs a major aspect of our business. His brain is like, it's just on a different level. So now when we hire, and now we're talking six figure salaries, and you know, kind of like what you're talking about, it's easy. Because you know that, well, first of all, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You'll know. You'll know. But you're not going to get anyone good. That grinding and like grinding people down financially is not going to work. People know. So you have to spend the money. And the good news is, is that it will make your business better. And that's, again, go back to the lobster. We could have gotten lobster that was more inexpensive. There's different grades of lobster, like there are steaks. But we went to the top. And then when we got all this success, we could have still gone back down and said, okay, now let's really, you know, let's really, we got it. If you act that way, your business suffers. That's Jim and Sabin from Cousins Maine Lobster. For more on the guys in their restaurant group, visit CousinsMainLobster.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.